last week of Vintage Jesus, and, and in this series, our goal has been to understand, to discover, and get to know the real Jesus that we see in the Gospels, because it seems that there are many versions of Jesus in America today who, that have been created to prop up often a political agenda or some other you know, agenda, a televangelist agenda, and we have all of these versions of Jesus that seem to run contrary to the real Jesus, and, and even people who are hostile to religion are able to see this clearly, that, wow, you know, I don't think that's the Jesus of the Gospels, and so we, we want to encounter the real Jesus so we can follow the real Jesus, and today we're finishing that series talking about a version of Jesus that, unbelievably, we, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, we never thought we'd be in this place to, to say this out loud. But this version of nationalist Jesus. And we're contrasting this version of, of white Christian nationalism Jesus with the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke. And before we get started, by the way, I want to remind you this is a communion Sunday for us. And uh, I'll, I'll just acknowledge the truth. Everybody hates this kind of communion. Somebody this morning called this Keurig communion. Isn't that great? It's a COVID communion. We used to take communion differently, but now we use these disposable cups. Matthew's going to come around. If you didn't get a cup when you came in, would you raise your hand? And Matthew will make sure that you get a, a, a communion cup. And if you want to take communion with us online, just have a piece of bread and a, and a beverage ready at the end of the service, and you can join with us as well. So you've probably heard some Christians make statements like this, something like this. We need to take America back for God. Have you heard Christians make statements like that they believe that the founding fathers intended to make America an evangelical Christian country, and we should have prayer in schools, and we should put the Ten, the Ten Commandments on public property. Some will say that the U.S. Constitution was inspired by God, the same way that Christians throughout the centuries have talked about the Bible. There is the belief that God gave the Americas to European settlers as the new promised land, like, like the people of Israel, uh, you know, moved into the promised land in the Old Testament. And, and there's this conflation of America with God, or this conflation of America with Israel. And, and uh, the, first commitment to our, uh, first, the first amendment to our Constitution makes it clear that America does not have an official religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means that as a, as a government, the United States is out of the religion business. We were founded by people who came from countries that have a state church, England, uh, others in, in Scandinavia. There's, a, there's an official state church. And contrary to what some folks believe, our founding leaders did not want an established state church in America. So officially, our government is a secular democracy. We just say, live and let live. We don't have an established religion here. And yes, America has traditionally been a majority Christian country, that's true, but they did not make America officially a Christian nation. But the belief that America is a white Christian country is the foundation of white Christian nationalism. That God gave white European Christian settlers this country, and that's the way that it should always be. So, a little bit of backstory, the word nation 
comes from the Latin natio, that means birth, uh, prenatal unit, prenatio unit, or, uh, right? You get the idea. So, um, nation is connected with your birth, and historically, there has been an ethnic connection to the word nation. A lot of times we think of nation as synonymous with state or country, but that's not how the word nation came to be. It came to be the place of your birth and, and the people group that you are born into. So there's an ethnic component to nationalism. And over the past few years, we've witnessed a resurgence of white Christian nationalism in America. And according to Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, the authors of, uh, of really the I think this, the, the standard reference book now on white Christian nationalism in America, it's called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. They say it, that it's based on the premise that the United States is intended by God to be a white Christian nation. And so you get this version, this nationalist Jesus created by people who are adherents of white Christian nationalism, and you saw this at the Capitol on January 6th. Some in the crowd bought, brought tall crosses next to Confederate flags, and they were praying the blood of Jesus over the Capitol. And, and it was even reported that the, the neo-fascist group, the Proud Boys, knelt in prayer before breaching the Capitol building. And so we get this, this conflation of, of uh, nationalism and religion and, of course, white supremacy, and that's where we are. Let's be honest. Who dreamed 10 years ago that we would be talking about these things today? Did you? I, I didn't think we'd be where we are. I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. That was a curveball. But that's that's where we are now, but it's important for us to realize something, and in, in researching for this sermon, uh, I learned uh, that white Christian nationalism is not new in America, and of course, I, I knew that to some extent, but I didn't know the full extent. White Christian nationalism is not new in America. The Puritans saw themselves as heirs of the biblical Israel. When they came over from England and established the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1600s, they believed that God was giving them this land the way God gave the children of Israel the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. And, and they set up a theocratic government, a theocracy, which is a fusion of religion and government that led to, to public corporal punishment being put in the stocks, of course, or being executed for breaking what, what was their interpretation of biblical laws. And then ultimately that culminated in the Salem witch trials when, when women were accused of something that they had no way of, of proving or disproving and, and were executed. I believe 19 uh, women were executed for being witches with no evidence. Now, by the way, I'm sure that there is a diversity of opinion in this congregation on abortion. I'm sure that's the case. There are different views in this congregation on abortion. I did find it interesting this week in Texas that, that the law that was passed regarding abortion deputizes private citizens to, to bring a lawsuit against anyone they perceive as assisting in an abortion after six weeks. Have you followed the news this week? So the state of Texas will not go after somebody who is providing an abortion, but they have deputized private citizens 
that anybody anywhere can bring a lawsuit, of course, against an abortion clinic, against an Uber driver, against somebody who dog sits, against somebody who helps to pay for an abortion after six weeks. And if they win that lawsuit, they get $10,000. And I'll be honest, that reminded me of the Salem witch trials. Because I was researching the sermon as I heard that news, people pointing fingers, private citizens accusing other people of things with a financial reward. Wow, interesting. You know, we, we, we have some people in America who are partying like it's 1699. And, and we're seeing these old things that we thought were gone come back. But that was the Puritans, but later slaveholding states justified the enslavement of Africans by reading their racial prejudice into the Bible. They, they believe that certain things in the Bible justify their racial prejudice, which, of course, do not. But that was a twisted, distorted view of the Bible. And then they said, well, we believe the Bible, and so th- we get to practice slavery. And then, of course, it reared its head again during Reconstruction when the KKK terrorized freed persons in the South. And then again during Jim Crow, and, and we've seen this now time and time again, the characters Uh, changed, but the story remained the same with white Christian nationalists. And then new immigrants to America, Catholics, Irish, Germans, um, Hispanics, Asians, anybody who was new was looked on with suspicion. And then over time, some people got to be considered, quote-unquote, white by white Christian nationalists. And now we see white Christian nationalism as this cocktail of religion and mythology about the founding of America that's not true, and violence, and sexism, and racism, and prejudice towards anybody who is perceived as different in any way, the role of women, and so on, and, and then they claim to follow a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi who elevated the role of women and taught nonviolence, and was once again, I repeat, Jewish. So you have people who are anti-Semitic who are following a Jewish guy. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. That's what so many of us are scratching our heads. What is going on in this country? It, it's not supposed to make sense because it doesn't make sense. And so today we're, we're contrasting nationalist Jesus with a parable that Jesus told that may be the most famous parable in the Bible. I don't know. The parable of the good Samaritan. And you know this parable probably all of you. And we know that anybody who does a good deed is called a a good Samaritan. If they step in, they're a bystander, and they step in and help somebody. But just like on week one, the most important thing to understand about this parable is who Jesus was talking to when he told this parable. Just like week one, this is the detail that's often missed, who Jesus was talking to when he told this parable. So Jesus tells the parable of, of the good Samaritan in a room full of people who didn't like Samaritans. And it was, and vice versa. Samaritans didn't like them either. So if Jesus had been hanging out with Samaritans here, he would have told a story about you know these good folks. But Samaritans were a people who who lived north of Jerusalem in a land called Samaria, and they were of a different race and a different religion. Uh, the people in the room saw Samaritans as a mixture of Assyrians, which would be a modern day Iran and Israelites, ethnically and religiously. They saw them as unclean, a product of, of mixed marriages, and they did not travel through Samaria. 
If they were going north, they traveled around Samaria. And you should also know there's a road that from Jerusalem down to the ancient city of Jericho, which is where the Good Samaritan parable is set. And the road is 18 miles long. And during that 18 miles, the elevation drops 3,000 feet. I've actually been on this road in a bus, thankfully, and I didn't have to walk it. And you just go down, down, down. And there are all these twisty, curvy roads. And there are lots of places for robbers in the ancient world to, to hide behind rocks you know, or some cave and jump out and ambush people and rob them. And so this was known as a dangerous road, this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And somebody in the room, as Jesus was telling the story, somebody in the room may have thought to themselves, well, you know, you've got you to gotta be careful walking that road because some Samaritan might jump out and rob you. You know how those Samaritans are. There was that potentially, kind of attitude in the room. They were viewed as enemies. Calling somebody a Samaritan was to insult that person. That's the room Jesus was telling this story. And so let's read it. Uh, Luke chapter 10 starts with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. Now catch this, verse 29, but the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to this question. So who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another kind of religious figure, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, and a type of money, of course, and gave them to uh, the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus looks at the, the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, he wouldn't say Samaritan. He just said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is like WWE SmackDown right here. Oh, man, my goodness. I mean, in, in some kind of an argument, in a debate, this is a devastating way of making a point. And Jesus, of course, identifies with the feelings of so many people in his time and in ours that the religious figures passed by on the other side of the road. 
Their religion stood in the way of them helping this man. To touch a neglected corpse would have made them ritualistically unclean. And they didn't know if this guy was dead or alive, and they didn't want to risk it. I don't want to violate my religious principles by helping this man. They were probably Sadducees, who were a, a sect who followed the literal interpretation of the law. They didn't use the oral tradition that Pharisees used that permitted compassion in, in instances like this. So these were biblical literalists whose religion prevented them from having compassion on this man. And then when, when the, uh, the people who were hearing the story expected Jesus to probably say, and then the good Israelite stopped by, he throws him a curveball. And he, he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Interestingly enough, Samaritans also, like the Sadducees, had a literal reading of the Bible. But the Samaritan didn't let that stand in the way. Apparently, he thought, well, maybe this person's not dead and I can still help him. And so the Samaritan chose to act with compassion. And Jesus goes into great detail to describe how the Samaritan cared for this man. And then, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? And the man wouldn't even say Samaritan. He just says the one who had mercy. So the people in the room to whom Jesus told this parable thought they knew all they needed to know about Samaritans. They had stereotypes. They had assumptions. They had prejudices. All they needed, they, were, they didn't need any more information about Samaritans. And again, it would have been vice versa had Jesus been talking about Samaritans. And so Jesus tells a story about a good Samaritan. Baptistnews.com published an, uh, an opinion article recently called, Want to Understand Critical Race Theory? Read the Parable of the Good Samaritans by Susan Shaw and Regina McClinton. And they say, Jesus rocks this lawyer's world by telling a counter story that challenges the lawyer's ethno-religious bias. He thought he had all the information he needed. Jesus gives him a counter-narrative to see Samaritans in a new light. So if we were making observations about this version of nationalist Jesus, the first one we have to make is the teaching of Jesus thoroughly discredits white nationalism. Smackdown style. The teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospels, in this parable, the greatest commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, thoroughly discredits white nationalism. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, let's read it together here, uh, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says even to love your enemies. The central teaching of Jesus is to love God and love your neighbor, just like the lawyer knew. And that includes people you think are your enemies. Now, we have to acknowledge that for centuries, Christians have been guilty of perpetuating violence in the name of Jesus. Of course, the Crusades, but that's not it. Persecution at the hands of the church. Anti-Semitic violence against Jews. There's, there's a history there that we have to acknowledge. And at the same time, where I'm coming from at least, is that's not because of the teaching of Jesus. It was because Christianity has been the dominant religion and it's useful to people who want to hijack it for their own purpose and distort it and twist it and then do whatever they want, quote unquote, in the name of Jesus. 
but I don't see how you can read love your enemies and then come away thinking, oh, that means I should attack the capital. I, I don't see, pray for those who persecute you and then carry out racist acts against people you don't like. Or start a, a segregated, quote-unquote, Christian school, the way that religious right leaders did in the 1960s. I don't see how you read the teaching of Jesus and then come away being a white Christian nationalist. But we know there's a history of that. So 20 years ago, and it's amazing that I can, I can say that now, I've reached the age where I can just casually say, 20 years ago, uh, I, was, I was an associate pastor in a church, and this is back in Ohio, in r- rural Ohio, and um, I was new there, and, and one day we had a staff meeting with the pastor and, and the other staff at the church, and uh, the pastor said, we got another letter, and I didn't know what that meant, of course, and, and the rest of the people just kind of like, oh, eye-rolling, and, uh, and he, he didn't read all of the letter, but he explained to me, there's this, there's this gentleman in the congregation who's an older man, and... Um, Every time in a sermon that I just casually mention that Jesus was Jewish, he writes me a letter. And it's not an email, it's a letter written in longhand. And, and I said, can I read it? And so he handed me the letter, and I'm not going to repeat the things that were in the letter. But the man was agitated because the pastor mentioned that Jesus is Jewish. And he, he wanted to challenge that. Like he had, you know, paragraphs with all written in cursive, you know, where, with, with these arguments to why Jesus couldn't have been a Jewish, which nobody in the world agrees with. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a fact about Jesus that is accepted by everybody except for him, apparently. And, and every once in a while, he would write a letter like that. And I, I read down through the letter, and I thought, oh, this is, this is KKK stuff. This is white supremacist theology, twisted, distorted, weird, doesn't make any sense, because it, it doesn't. Uh, and, but I, I know, I've heard this kind of stuff before, and, and that's what this is. It's KKK stuff. And so here's a man who goes to church every Sunday and, and has to somehow uh, rationalize in his mind, he's a white supremacist, he has to rationalize in his mind why him being an anti-Semitic guy, Jesus wasn't Jewish, and how he can follow, it just doesn't make any sense. But we have to acknowledge that that has been a part of our country. So Jesus discredits white nationalism, but what does this parable mean? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan means the person you view as your enemy is your neighbor. Doesn't that stink? Don't you wish there was a different meaning to the parable of the Good Samaritan? Like, can't there be some other meaning to this awesome parable? Because that's really hard. And, you know, I'm not sure. It sounds good when it's to other people. It sounds good when it's applied to somebody I don't like and I want them to love their enemies. But then I think, ah, wait a second. It applies to me, too. And so as I prepared for this and thinking about everything that's happening in our country and the ugliness of all of it in history, I had to ask the question, what does the parable of the Good Samaritan mean for me? I, I don't want to be a white Christian nationalist. I'm not that. But what does it mean for me? We're not off the hook. 
So I would say for those of us who don't fit into that category, but, but we do want to follow the real Jesus, it means that we actively choose to be a neighbor to people we could view as our enemies. And that's really hard, especially in the time we live in now. And I had to ask myself, what does that look like? Does, does it mean coddling nationalists? Coddling fascists? Should I, oh, oh, just help the person be a good fascist? Is that what it means? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means. So what does it look like for people like me, for people like you, to view the people we could view as our enemies as our neighbors? Well, that same church, 20 years ago, um, there was a, a guy who, who came to me one day because uh, he wanted to talk with the pastor, wanted to talk about some things he was going through. And he was about my age, and he was, he was like a, a manly man, you know? Uh, he's a man's man. He's, he's the kind of guy who was just kind of a tough guy. And, and he sat down, and he's, he's like, I, I don't normally do this kind of thing, you know? And he was, he was uncomfortable talking to a pastor, but, but he, he felt like he needed to. And so we just kind of, you know, tried to joke around a little bit and build some rapport. And, and um, finally he said, you know, the reason I wanted to meet with you is I just lost my job. And I said, I'm sorry. And, and he explained how it happened, got the papers. And, and he worked for a, a factory that manufactured products out of sheet metal. Right, so this is, this is man's work in, in, in his mind, in his mind. And so he, he got to throw sheet metal around for a living, and he loved it. He really enjoyed that job, and, and he told me that, that his job was outsourced to a different country, and the factory closed, and, and uh, he told me what it was like to come home and, and, and break the news to his wife. You know, honey, I just got laid off. They're closing the factory. And he fought back emotion. This big, burly dude fought back emotion when he described how difficult it was. And again, this is just, this is him sharing out of his own heart that he couldn't provide for his family the way that he wanted to. And how hard that was and how hard his wife worked and he this put extra stress on her and he just felt, you know, like just more and more deflated, more and more belittled, more and more shamed, I think, in his idea of, what a, of who a man is. And, w- and the idea that he had about what it meant to be a breadwinner and be a husband. And, and he started look, looking for other work, and he did find a government program that gave him a little bit of funding for some training, but it was for a job that was completely different from, from what he was doing before. He's like, I'm thankful for it, I'm glad, but it's not what I want to do. And, and so you had this guy who was, who was grieving the loss of a job, yes, but also grieving the loss of his identity. What he perceived to be a man, a breadwinner, a provider. And I think of, about him a lot these days. Because, again, back in Ohio, that area of Ohio is referred to as the Rust Belt. In the upper Midwest there, where you had who knows how many thousands of people just like him over the past 20, 30 years whose job has been outsourced and, and, and he, you know, he's thankful for other opportunities, but that's not what he wanted to do with his life. And he felt a loss of identity. Now, that in no way excuses 
white Christian nationalism and what is happening. And I don't know what he's up to these days. I don't know what group he's a part of. It in no way excuses that. But thinking about him does allow me to see the humanity in some people that are so troubling. I'm able to see them in some sense laying, you know, by the side of the road, beaten and bloodied by life, by economic powers they have no control over, who alters his life, and not only that, but his identity. Now, I also think of people who have been the victims of racial violence over the decades, and the people who have felt the same way, who have a different color of skin than he has, and have been judged for that. I think of them too. There also, so many people are, are laying by the side of the road, beaten and bloodied by this country over and over and over again. But choosing to be a neighbor to the people that I could view as my enemy probably means something like thinking about people like that and real needs in this country, people who have been jerked around by economic forces and outsourcing and all this kind of thing. And not only that, but their identity has been undermined. And being a neighbor to them probably means thinking about the plight of those folks. And will that end nationalism? Will that end authoritarianism? Will that make somebody not a racist? Does that just excuse people who are racist? No, it doesn't. There are people who are racist, and they're going to be racist. No matter how nice you are, how many, how many hugs you give them, they're still going to be racist. But thinking about people like him, and this is just the way I think about it, if there are enough people like him who are helped, it just takes the gas out of the gas tank of nationalism, of fascism, of authoritarianism, because they know that, okay, well, these people care about me, and then these people just want to make a lot of hateful noise. It doesn't excuse anything, but it takes the gas out of the tank. I remember when I was, I don't know, about 10, 12, I was old enough to have conversations with my grandma that I could remember, you know, that meant something. And I've talked about her so many times in this church. And, and, and uh, she was born in 1920 in southeastern Ohio, which is Appalachia. It's an area that's always struggled economically, that's always been left behind, forgotten by much of the country. And when the Great Depression happened, you know, she was, she was a teenager at that point, And she told me what it was like to stand in a soup line. And, and wait for food. She said that uh, when, when they could, they would get, you know, f- feed from a feed store or, the, or even the cloth from a, f- a feed bag. I guess like animal feed would be stored in a big cloth bag. And she and her siblings would make dresses out of the, the cloth from the feed bag. And that's how they got through. She said they would pick little violets, wildflowers, and walk down uh, the road to closer to town and sell them to people who were coming by just to try to make, you know, pennies to try to help their family. And I realize that, you know, when you mention one political figure, it can be seen as controversial by some people, and I, I understand all that, but I'm just relaying to her the story she told me. She told me that she remembers in the 1930s sitting down with her family before dinner, and she said, I think there are other families that do this too, and they would say grace before they ate whatever they ate. And they would thank God for FDR. Now, once again, you can have whatever view you want to have about political figures in history. And he did some things that we would not want to repeat either with internment camps or on World War II. Before that, 
She said the economic impact that he made in people's lives caused people to thank God for him. And she said there were people who realized, I can eat right now because of him. Again, fourth disclaimer, you believe whatever you want to believe about politics and parties and all of that. But I know from her perspective, as somebody who lived through the Great Depression in Appalachia, that's what she said about somebody who helped people like her. So we actively choose to be a neighbor to people we could view as our enemies. Maybe that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan means for us. Now, this Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That's another thing that's unbelievable to say, isn't it? 20 years since 9-11. And since 9-11, psychologists have, have done their best to try to understand why people are radicalized, why people become terrorists. And, and of course, that started by, by researching radicalization in other countries. Now, that includes studying why people are radicalized here. And we have domestic terrorists, and, and there are not easy answers. But one of the ways that I've tried to keep from, let's be honest, hating people that I could view as my enemy is by studying how people are radicalized and trying to empathize in any way I possibly can, to understand any way I can, why is it that people believe these things and do these things and, and have put us in the place that we are right now? And then, of course, that includes how do you de-radicalize people, which is not easy. But the findings so far are just a couple of different things. First of all, for people who are kind of the lone believer, like a lot of QAnon supporters... They're, they're not uh, folks who are necessarily acting in groups. It might seem like they are, but they're really in their, in their house Googling stuff and believing stuff, and then they put it on social media. They said so far, um, in a study that was conducted by the National Institute of Mental Health, that 63% had a, a diagnosed condition of schizophrenia, sociopathy or psychopathy. And like I said in my prayer, I'm thankful that the stigma toward mental illness is decreasing in this country. And so 99.9% .9 of all people who would have a diagnosable mental illness are not radicalized. We want, to be, we want to be careful, correct? We want to be careful to say that very clearly. But they're finding that folks who are on, you know, on their own just Googling stuff and believing conspiracy theories that seem outlandish, a lot of those folks struggle with really serious issues. And I don't know about you, but that just, that helps me to maybe choose to view that person a little bit more as a neighbor and less as an enemy. I can see them as somebody who's laying on the side of the road. They also said that one of the triggers for people becoming radicalized is trauma. Any kind of life trauma, childhood trauma, having a parent who was incarcerated or a parent who wasn't available to them, or what's called relative deprivation, like the guy that I talked about earlier where he had a good job and then it was outsourced, and they're not doing as well as they used to do. He said th those kinds of trauma events are behind a, lo a lot of the folks that you see who are posting things that you think are crazy on the internet, a lot of those folks 
have experienced trauma. They have said, let's just acknowledge what's obvious, a form of religion that, that helps them feel in and everybody else is out. That's a factor in radicalization and terrorism from other countries and domestic terrorism, a form of, of twisted religion that helps them feel holy and everybody else is, you know, they're not clean, they're not pure. That is a part of radicalizing people. And then finally, they said, community. Is the person in a community of people who tend to believe these things? And there may not be any kind of sociopathy or psychopathy there. It's just they might be otherwise fully functioning, healthy adults, but they're in a community of people where it's just their, their friends are, are people who believe these extreme things. And so through osmosis, they just get sucked into that as well. Now, you think about trauma that lots of people have faced. Now, you think about a form of religion that's, I'm in, you're out, and then communities where that kind of thing is talked about a lot. What do you call that? Well, in a lot of places in America, you call that a church where people who are hurting and there's community and there's this view of God that I'm holy and everybody else is out. And it's just a part of the reality we live in, that there are a lot of church communities in this area and around the country that are radicalizing people into white Christian nationalism. Understanding helps me at least some to choose to see the humanity in that person and maybe view them as a little more of a neighbor and less of an enemy people who are in communities and are talking about Jesus. And they're in a community where people are starting to, you know, send extremist emails to each other and social media posts. And then you see your family members posting the same stuff. You're like, what? Where did, where did that come from? And it's like this big exercise in group think. You know what group think is? Where you'll get into a meeting and then the ideas coming out of the meeting are, are something so dumb, no individual would ever think of that on their own. Have you had an experience like that where let's go solve this problem and then everybody has, probably has some good ideas, but then out of the meeting, you're like, what, what, why do we choose that? It's because group think just takes over and we all kind of want to fit in. And then some idea comes out. Have you heard of the demotivational posters? You have the inspirational posters and, and I love these demotivational posters, like sarcastic versions of, uh, of, of motivational. One of my favorites is this, meetings, because none of us is as dumb as all of us. One of my favorites, and that's, that's group think. That's how, that's how we function if we're in an echo chamber and we only hear what we already agree with. And folks can come out of a community like a church being radicalized, but at least it helps me to see some humanity in them and view them more as a neighbor and less as an enemy. As we talk about the word radical, I'm going to take this opportunity to make a shameless plug uh, for the series that we're starting next week a more Christ-like way, and this is our all-church study that we've been talking about here. So for six weeks, the sermon and your reading and the online connect group is going to be about the same material every single week. There's a reading plan on my weekly email. You can text uh, welcome to that number um, to get my weekly email. And in the, uh, in the book here, the author Brad Jerzak talks about, he used the word radical, but it's a lot different than this kind of radicalization. He talks about radical uh, self-giving. Radical unity, radical forgiveness, those kinds of things. What if as followers of Jesus, 
we practice that kind of radicalism. So those are the kinds of things we're talking about in this book. And if you'd like to participate, you can buy your book wherever books are sold. This is like the end of the commercial where the guy talks really fast to get it all in during the 30 seconds. You can buy your book wherever books are sold. Go to wallchurch.org and sign up for the online connect group. It starts a week from this Wednesday. And next Sunday is week one of this new series. And we're going we're gonna to go deeper with who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So I'm going to close with this. How can I be a neighbor even to people that I could view as my enemies. I want to show you a clip from a series that I think a lot of people probably think is, is you know, the best series on television at this point. Um, and remember, you know, the people in the room didn't want to understand Samaritans. They thought they knew all they needed to know. They, d- they were not curious and open to new information. And so Ted Lasso is a, is a TV series uh, starring Jason Sudeikis as an American football coach who was brought to England. Who's seen Ted Lasso? You know what I'm talking about? All right. Oh, man, the rest of you, you are in. You're going to love this. So uh, Ted Lasso is brought over. He's an American football coach, but he's brought to England to coach an English Premier League, even though he knows nothing about soccer at all. So the, the owners of the team were a couple who have recently gotten divorced, and the man, the husband, ex-husband, loves this football team. And he's got a new flame, and he's, he's giving his ex-wife a hard time, and she decides, you know what, I'm, to get back at him, I'm going to bring in this coach who knows nothing about soccer to coach this team that he, that he loves. So that's the, that's the premise, and they bring Ted Lasso in, and even though Ted is underestimated time and time again, he just keeps rising to the top. The team starts winning. He, he wins their hearts and, and with his charm and unconventional wisdom. And, and so in this scene, uh, the ex-husband, Rupert, wants to take control of the team back from his ex-wife, Rebecca. And Rupert assumes some things about Ted and challenges Ted to a, a game of darts for control of the team. It's about three and a half minutes long. Let's watch great? Be curious. And he, when he wants to clear his mind before winning, he just thinks happy thoughts, and so that's why he said barbecue sauce. It makes him happy. Barbecue sauce. Be curious. The, the folks in the room assumed they knew everything there was to know about the Samaritans. They were not curious, and it would have been vice versa, but Jesus challenged them by telling them the story of the good Samaritan. Jesus thoroughly discredits white Christian nationalism. But what that means for you and me is we can also choose to view as a neighbor people we could view as our enemies. Oh God, you know it's difficult for us to separate the person from what they do. We hate racism. We hate this arrogant assumption that we see in so many that they know all they need to know about other folks and that they rewrite history and believe things that aren't even true as a way to feel superiority or God, nationalism threatens to tear our country apart. But we refuse to hate other people. Like the Good Samaritan, we want to be a neighbor because as hard as it is, even our enemies are our neighbors. And as we have taken communion together, we're reminded of 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 Jesus' self-giving love taught by him but also demonstrated by him and it's impossible to read the gospels and come away with a message that we should hate 
And so on this last week of Vintage Jesus, as people who want to follow the real Jesus, God, may we speak out. In a time when so many people are claiming that you are behind their white Christian nationalism and they're perpetuating these things in Jesus' name, may we speak out, God. Not be silent. Choosing to be a neighbor doesn't mean silence. May we speak out in defense of everybody just like Jesus did in this room when he told the story of the good Samaritan. May we speak out and provide a counter narrative just like Jesus that speaks directly to racism and hatred and nationalism and says, no, that's not what Jesus stands for. And we want to follow the real Jesus. And we pray these things in the name of the real Jesus. And everybody said,